The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, um, <clears throat> welcome to our Dharma practice day on the topic of equanimity. And we'll start by doing a short sitting. And <coughs> near the end of the sitting, I'll do a little guided meditation, or guided reflection. So, for this, uh, and then later, after the sitting, I'll do more of an introduction and welcome, explaining what we're doing today. So, to start the sitting, take a comfortable and alert posture sitting up a little bit straighter than you normally would. And part of what equanimity involves in the Buddhist practice is having a sense of balance, being balanced. And so that can begin with taking a posture that feels balanced. Sometimes sitting up straighter allows you to feel stronger support from your chair or from your cushion. Sitting up a little straighter along the spine allows to be a little more strength in your torso, which translates to maybe a little bit more sense of physical balance that comes from the inside. And then the way that many people can live their lives busy, thinking a lot, there can be an upward or centrifugal force out or an upward force in our direction in how we use our body or how the body's activated or energized. And part of being balanced is to let your energy here what feels activated in your body, to settle down and in. So perhaps by taking a few long, slow, deep breaths, as you exhale, you can relax and settle in to your body. Let there be a settling. Perhaps relaxing your stomach, belly. Perhaps relaxing or softening your shoulders. seeing if, while maintaining an upright spine, you can relax your body. Or if you can't relax, to soften around the places of holding and tension. And then breathing normally. Tuning in to your breathing, the rhythm of breathing in your body. As if your breathing is a support for you that helps you not get pulled into your world of thinking and reactivity, your concerns and worries and with a simple coming back to breathing, breathing mindfully 
it does bring a little bit of balance or less reactivity, less tendency to get pulled off. Coming back to the breath as if the breath, the breathing is at the balance point, the still point within, breathing in and breathing out, one breath after another. When the Buddha gave his, the first instructions to his son Rahula, he began by offering him an image or analogy for the meditative mind. And the analogies were meant to bring forth equanimity, to be equanimous or non-reactive to the various things that could occur as you meditate.
I'd like to offer you some of these images or analogies in a little bit more developed way. The first that he offered was to make the mind like the earth. The earth being a place of strength and balance, firmness. And perhaps there's an image you can have of a great expanse of solid ground, earth, Some people have an image of a huge mountain. Or a vista of great piece of ground from an airplane. In a sense that the solidity image of solidity and strength, firmness. So many things might occur on the surface of the earth, coming and going of animals and peoples and different events. But the firmness, the solidity, can hold it all. And so in meditation to make oneself solid enough, firm enough, that all kinds of things can occur, agreeable and disagreeable things can occur. And the mind is not moved by that. And then the Buddha used the analogy of a vast body of water. Perhaps you can have an image of a vast, looking out across the vastness of the ocean, or a vast lake. The water is not exactly solid, but it's so vast and spacious The vast majority of the ocean is peaceful beneath the surface. And if you throw a rock into the ocean, if you f swim in the ocean, the ocean can hold it all can move and part and mix, make room for whatever arises, whatever happens, without being disturbed. So in the same way, to make your own mind vast and soft, fluid, so whether agreeable or disagreeable things occur, They don't disturb the vast, fluid, open expanse of your mind.
And then the Buddha told his son to develop his meditation like space. <clears throat> you might get a sense or image of the vastness of empty space, even the empty space here surrounding the earth, surrounding us. And how space doesn't resist anything that moves in it. You can throw something up into the space around you and whether it doesn't doesn't disturb the stillness, the openness, the receptivity of space. So in the same way, to make your mind like space, spacious, open, certain kind of emptiness in the awareness, where the content of awareness can move freely, doesn't disturb the space of the mind, whether agreeable or disagreeable things occur. They can arise and pass in a great expanse of spacious mind. And then one more image or analogy the Buddha made was that of fire. To develop meditation or his meditative mind like fire. A strong fire. A big, strong, big fire. That also is undisturbed by the things that are thrown into it. The strength is so much bigger than anything that comes into contact with. And so, to develop your inner life, to be strong, powerful. And in that strength and power, whatever agreeable and disagreeable things that occur, they're small. They're incidental. They don't disturb the mind.
So earth, water, space, fire. Perhaps one of these images can support and help you to be balanced, equanimous, non-reactive to what arises and passes. Undisturbed by what goes on in your mind, body, and heart. And then to end this sitting, take a couple of deep breaths. And when you're ready, you can open your eyes. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Dharma practice day. And um, maybe a couple of words, a few words for the people who are new. Um, these Dharma practice days are meant to be a place where we can explore and discuss and practice with some important teaching or quality or practice that is emphasized in Buddhism. And the hope that in doing so, it becomes more personal, it becomes something you have a personal relationship to and you f- see how it maybe applies to you or how it challenges you or can be more, more meaningful for you in your life. <clears throat> and it's done by not just simply listening to a talk or sitting in silent meditation, but by um, engaging in different ways. Sometimes a guided meditation like we just did, sometimes by having discussions, usually just lots of discussion, a chance to discuss a topic, and I think it's not so common for many people in their daily life to have a chance to have a focused um, conversation, discussion about uh, uh, spiritual topics, spiritual thing, with other people who are interested and focused on the same thing. And um, um, so as the course of the day goes, we'll have some times when we, uh, we get into groups to discuss a particular topic. Sometimes we'll discuss something as a whole group. Sometimes maybe you'll gather together in pairs and have a little more focused conversation. We'll do some more, some more meditation as we go through the day. A variety of things. And um, it's partly with the idea that, or inspired by the, the fact that traditionally in Buddhism, uh, monks and nuns who live in monasteries um, don't just listen to talks or read on their own or meditate, but they live together in community, and in that community, there's lots of opportunity to uh, have the Dharma discussions, to learn from each other, and to get to know each other in some deeper way through the Dharma, through the practice. And so a little bit, this is a replication of that, uh, trying to do that, trying to create community and, and to learn from each other and to engage in some wider way with the practice. So the, um, this is the last, you're welcome to come if you're new to this, very happy to have you. Uh, it also happens to be the uh, last of, the, of a ten-part series on the ten perfections, which are ten qualities, ten 
aspects of heart which um, are very supportive in doing Buddhist practice and which arise out of doing Buddhist practice. These things get strengthened as we go along. And so it's a wonderful kind of uh, mutuality that it both gets cultivated through practice and then it supports further practice and develops practice, so it's self-reinforcing. Sometimes uh, Dharma practice kind of works like a snowball getting bigger and bigger as you go down the hill. Sometimes you get a sense that it builds on itself. And um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, these ten qualities uh, that are that I'll list in a moment are what makes them paramis, or the, probably the English translation is perfections, is not them in and of themselves, but rather how they're tied to two particular developments or movements in Buddhist practice. How they're connected to the liberation, becoming free, becoming free of our clinging. Um, it's kind of a very personal movement of liberating the heart. And the other is how they're connected to our compassionate involvement with others, with the world around us. Uh, that we, uh, that somehow it supports our capacity to be compassionate, to be of service, uh, to be of care to others. And, and what's beautiful about classic Buddhism is the way in which uh, compassion and liberation go hand in hand. They really support each other and go t- together. It's not one or the other, but it's, it's both together. And so these ten qualities um, support both and, and expre- can, can be used to express both. So these ten are um, ethical integrity, sila, generosity, I guess first actually it starts with generosity, and then ethical integrity, and then renunciation, or letting go, and then uh, wisdom, and then energy, or effort, or, and then uh, strength, and then um, <clears throat> patience, and then there's uh, truthfulness, Resolve, loving kindness, and then the topic for today, which is equanimity. And so, equanimity is one of the crown, ju- maybe the crown jewel of all of Buddhist practice, uh, short of liberation itself. It's one of the most beautiful qualities of mind or heart that a person can cultivate, though it takes uh, maybe perhaps the cultivating of it to realize how beautiful it is, because from a distance. Um, Equanimity uh, can look like, or can people can be afraid that it's kind of an aloofness or an indifference, uh, kind of a coldness to it. But in fact, it's quite beautiful, and and to experience the, the variety of different kinds of equanimity that are possible is to experience something really beautiful. Um, the um, there's one one description. Let me see if I can have it here of equanimity that the Buddha gave. Is um, when there remains only equanimity pure and bright, pliant, malleable, and luminous. So here's a description of a mind that's developed very through meditation, very strong state of equanimity. And for the Buddha, that state of equanimity is pure, bright, pliant, malleable, and luminous. So that's not, you know, kind of some kind of aloof, indifferent, or kind of cold kind of state of mind. The, probably the simplest way of understanding the idea of Buddhist equanimity is to call it non-reactivity. And um, uh, so whatever goes on around you, you don't react to it. You don't get caught up in it. You don't get pushed around by it. Someone says something mean to you and you don't get pushed around by that mean statement. Your mind stays balanced and you, know, you don't get caught or reactive to it. You might respond, but your mind doesn't automatically in a, uh, react. And, um, but I think the problem with uh, relating it to just non-reactivity, that refers to the absence of something, the absence, absence of reactivity, whereas the state of equanimity is, a, is actually a thing, is a state of mind, which is quite beautiful and profound in its own right. <clears throat> and so to just say you're being non-reactive might 
again, lend to the idea that it's kind of an indifference or, you know, uninvolvement with how things are. Um, sometimes uh, there's different kinds of equanimity in Buddhism. And in fact, it's the most common... You know, Buddhism has a lot of lists. Some of you know that. And probably the most common factor in, in the most number of lists, the, the word that appears in the most lists most often, is equanimity, in, indicating how important it is. Um, it, you know, it's in ten paramis, in the four Brahma-viharas, there's an equanimity, in... Um, in uh, the development of mindfulness practice, vipassana practice, there's a st- stage called the uh, mindfulness, uh, uh, insight into the equanimity of all, f- all formations or conditioned activities of the mind. There is um, seven factors of awakening as equanimity that's primarily seen as a balance. When the mind becomes really balanced, so the various factors, meditative factors that come into play in meditation are equally balanced. Um, so I, I don't remember all the different right now offhand, but it also appears in the factors of concentration. So it's both something that comes into play with mindfulness. It also comes into play in the third and fourth uh, jhana or or or, or absorption, strong meditation states. In fact, uh, mindfulness is said it gets perfected or purified, completely purified in the fourth jhana. So there's you know in in this concentration practice, mindfulness and equanimity kind of come together with concentration in a beautiful way. Um, one of the reasons why equanimity is so important is that we're looking in Buddhism to set the mind, the heart free from being reactive, from clinging, from resisting, from tightening up, from contracting, from pulling away, from um, collapsing. And so anything that can help us, the mind not to do that, um, you know, helps us become free or helps us become not not have to live the consequences that come from clinging, resisting, collapsing, <coughs> pulling away, uh, getting reactive. And it's a beautiful thing to avoid those consequences. Those consequences generally are understood in Buddhism to be to involve suffering. And so as the mind becomes more non-reactive, more balanced, less caught and everything goes on, you're, you're, you're creating less conditions for suffering, but also you're creating greater conditions for freedom. And in fact, the deepest experiences of equanimity uh, are seen to be the, the uh, I don't know what they call it, but the, exactly, but the, the launching pad or the, the final step uh, before the mind sets itself free completely. And that's because the mind is already with equanimity so, so balanced, so non-reactive, <clears throat> that it's much easier to do the final letting go that sets the mind free. When, there's all, when the mind is already well-established in non-reactivity. If you're so reactive that you're caught up in everything, every, th- every little thing going on in your life, it's very hard to put, let's set the mind free. Um, and even if you've n- not a, you know, you're, you're relatively non-reactive, you might be really tightly clenched, attached to your sense of self, self-identity. And so uh, what is it that gets in there in the very deep, almost pre-verbal places where we get attached and cling to certain things. Uh, we need very powerful states of mind sometimes are needed to help get in there, the pre-verbal, pre-conceptual levels of where the mind operates. And the strong states of equanimity allows for that deeper, deeper kind of connection to the kind of pre-conceptual or the subconscious areas of mind, which is often the source of where we cling. So equanimity. Um, that's the topic. So before we go further, um, I'd like to hear from some of you uh, what it was like to kind of reflect on those analogies or images uh, that the Buddha offered to his son of earth, of water, space, fire. <coughs> Anybody have anything I'd like to say? Straight behind you, there. Right behind you, Gail. I resonated most with the image of the mountain, just the solid thinking of being on the top of a mountain with the wind blowing or the snow coming or the rain or whatever, and just being, having that incredible solidity of the rock underneath Mm -hmm. my feet. The Buddha said, as a solid mass of rock 
is not stirred by the wind, so a sage is not moved by praise or blame. Someone else? There's two. I had trouble with all of them. Um, the weather has been really rotten. We've had uh, tsunamis. There's a gigantic volcano in Iceland. Um, uh, we have earthquakes. I mean, that's what kept... It, it yeah. didn't work for me. Okay, that's, underst <laughs> that's understandable. It's understandable, but I think one of the ways to use these kind of analogies <clears throat> is to uh, not think about the exceptions. But because 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 that, uh, it doesn't help. The idea is how are these images helpful? Um, and so of course the mind can automatically make associations, and that's easy to do. But uh, uh, if they're always making those associations, perhaps there's uh, a need to look at uh, uh, the fear that underlies the fear that prompts uh, the constant association with disasters. That you know, because ninety percent of the time or ninety nine percent of the time. Um, I think that uh, the Earth is relatively solid, even though here in, in, in the peninsula, you know, if there's, you look in the Sunday paper, they have all these, you know, or the, you know, there's this, uh, descriptions of where little earthquakes occur. But um, the, the idea is not to look at this kind of uh, these kinds of exercises uh, in some kind of logical way, or look at all the, you know, the full, you know, idea, but to look how can I take this image in a way that's helpful for me. And so when you say water, well, you know, you, you, you can go out into a small boat onto a big storm and drown, and, you know, that's not good. But that's not helpful to help the mind become, help the mind become equanimous. So it might be more, I remember when I went up to, um, hiked up in Yosemite with my sons, I went up to, what is it called, um, Angel Falls, kind of, came to this beautiful lake up there. It was so beautiful and serene when we were up there. And, um, and um, so, you know, peaceful and still. I thought, he should, let's see if we can kind of make this a kind of subliminal even, kind of memory in a system. And I said, I said, told my youngest son, close your eyes, look at, look at the lake and now close your eyes and see if you can see the lake in your mind's eye. And see if you can remember this. This is a, how you feel inside and how it is to be here looking at this. And he, he went along with me. <laughs> but I can remember. And so if I'm going to call for... I've been in huge storms in the ocean that I wondered whether we were going to survive. So if I'm going to use the water as an analogy to help me get settled in meditation, I don't think of the storm. I think of that lake up in... The, so the idea is to use it. You know, to, it, takes some, it takes some effort to override all the possible exceptions we can think of. So what's the difference between that and going to a happy place? <laughs> Which is a little... a retirement home? <laughs> <laughs> that, that might be a happy place. I don't know. I, I hear we just got one. <laughs> it's, on, it's on sunny acres. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds lovely. <laughs> but to what extent is that delusional? Or can be? It can be very delusional if you go around and use that as an image, an idea that this is what, how reality is. You, you know, you know, so this is not meant to be a statement about how reality is, that reality is just this one way. But it's meant to be an aid, a support, an image to help the mind settle down and become equanimous so it doesn't get caught up in all the things that are going on. And so it's a little aid, it's a little guided meditation, it's a little, little um, visualization if it's helpful. Um, I mean, if, if you don't need any help to get settled, uh, please don't use it. <laughs> but, uh, but it's not meant to override what's really going on in the world. It's actually meant to help us see more clearly. And that's part of the function of equanimity is that is to help see more clearly what is there. So that when there does become a big storm, um, some kind of huge storm or earthquake or forest fire you're caught up in, uh, you're calmer, more balanced, so you can know better what to do. Because I've been in situations, I've, I've, I've been in situations where there was a fire, um, a real fire, a little forest fire, that I was, you know, had, I, had, I was responsible to somehow be the first one to deal with, and I wasn't calm. I know what that's like. 
And I've known people who made huge mistakes in their life because they didn't have equanimity in times of crisis. Um, so, it's, you know, it's not to be, have a crisis go on and say, oh, you know, it's all fine. So, so it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an aid that you use in a, in a certain context to see if it's helpful and supportive. It can be a crutch as well, and it can be an attachment as well, especially if you think you're supposed to always have, you know, rely on a certain state of mind. Um, sometimes it's really important to let your mind be out of control and not try to stabilize it, because then you really see what's going on inside of you. So it takes some wisdom to know in, in different times different things are needed. But uh, there are times, I think, where it can be helpful. It's, uh, remember, he, the Buddha was telling this to his son, who was uh, maybe, I think when his son was maybe, I think, a, a, about 13. And so often, you know, I think it's often good, for, helpful for people to have certain things that help them and aid them get settled uh, and calm down and get a sense of how to be equanimous when they first sit down to meditate. But then you have to also know when to let go of that and then learn, if you're not equanimous, to learn to meditate with that as opposed to trying to reach out again for the equanimity. Ted? Um, I... Other people might know Spanish better than I, but I heard the word for retired in Spanish is jubilado. You know, fits in with jubilation. But uh, the first time I saw equanimity, I just saw something very special. I didn't know at the time what it was, but I knew that I could expect it at that time. I was sitting on the back of a car seat in the back in my grandmother's driveway, and it fell over backwards, and I smashed my hand the weight of my body, and these are old, old, old car seats. So here I met the earth, you know, and it wasn't very friendly. And I ran in the house, and it was my grandmother's house, and I was hoping that I didn't run into my mom. My mom was real young, and she would have gone bananas. And fortunately, I ran into my grandmother, and she grabbed my hand, and she said, sweetie, we can take care of that. And I remember going, ah. <laughs> and as a little kid, I recognized equanimity in my grandmother. But I knew it was something special. And it wasn't until I grew much older that I saw what it was. it was. It was a caring that was not just wrapped up in emotion, you know. It's, we're here. We can deal with this. We can take care of this. Mm-hmm. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Yes. So in my visualization, I imagined actually being at the Grand Canyon. And I thought, oh, how interesting, this big, you know, drop. And I thought, oh, hmm. And so these ideas of like, you know, that fear of falling or that things fall away or the idea of an earthquake and things came. But I thought, but I just felt this very se- deep sense of, um, there, you know, it's, it, if you expand your view, um, those those pits, those earthquakes, they become very small. And that, um, you know, it is, there are caverns and pits and things, but there's something much, much greater. Yeah, so, so a cosmic scale of things sometimes can give a different perspective on, you know, our particular earthquake. So... I don't know if anybody else experienced this too. I tried looking at it from a variety of perspectives and my first inclination was the one that settled the best, which is I was kind of, I became that thing. And so the most settling for me is to embody. And I, w- I found if I visualize for the earth, I'm up, the, the earth is up here. Yeah, and above. I am all of it. And uh-huh. then the same thing with those other things. Uh-huh. And that was very solid for Beautiful. me. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, I had a similar experience with, you know, the mountain being, you know, kind of the whole mountain. Um, I, but something that came up in this is just it's the similarity. Um, you know, he was using like the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water, except, you know, of course, air instead of air, it was space. And I just wondered, was there a purpose to that? No, he, he did have, he has air in there as well. Um, but I thought it was getting long enough. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't, it wasn't going to do it at all, I thought. <laughs> oh, 
I found it interesting that the last time I remember doing this in a Dharma practice day, I really related to fire, because that's where I was at at the time. It felt like, ooh, I've got this hearth here, I'm you know, going to keep that fire going, that felt good. Today, I was totally water. It was very clear, you know, the water just finds the, the places to flow into. And um, so I thought it was really neat to realize that there are, you know, just, it's kind of a descriptive, uh, these different elements are kind of descriptive. And so where, where, where am I with, with any of them right now? And it can change. It doesn't have to be any one thing. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Thank you, Hilary. Behind you. Um, <clears throat> I took uh, space, but then um, brought in the concept of sky, the spaciousness of sky, mm-hmm. and generally can um, can help free my mind in troubled times when I connect my heart to mm-hmm. the sky, mm-hmm. lifting my heart to the sky, and the heart-sky connection is so incredibly vast. Mm-hmm. And um, so thank you for those images. Great. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, for me, it's space and meditation. Um, and, um, you know, it's kind of like the purity of the mind when it's just spacious. And things can come and go, and they're not really distracting. They get softer. Um, but in life, it's water. Uh, I think that, uh, well, and breath, but it's water. I was raised on Lake Michigan, and that was always very important to me. It was always healing to go out to the lake. And then I came to the ocean, and I love walking barefoot right at the edge of the surf. And it's so healing, the water. and. Um, even creeks or rivers. And, um, and in the garden, I'm a hoser. <laughs> because I like the water. <laughs> and um, so that's, that's very healing for me. But, um, and I also have trouble with the violence of nature and of people. And um, I find just breathing, you know, and get it, trying to bring that spaciousness in helps it. You know, and... Um, Heals that. I uh, relate a, a lot to the water, uh, to the sound of the ocean, because it resonates with my breath. And um, I especially like being somewhere like Fort Funston in San Francisco, where you can, you can really hear the, the um, kind of the heaving of the ocean and then a pause, and I mean, uh, heaving and letting go, and then there's a pause, and it's just like the breath. And so I often pair that in my meditation, that image, but it's also a, a feeling and more, more of a sensation and a sound as well as an image. So I, I think of the vastness, just using those words is also just evokes that sensation and mm. the relaxation and this is space in my own mind. Beautiful. Thank you. But then there's a real good way to lose that equanimity and that's to start clinging to that image or feeling that the or believing that the place um, where you were with that lovely um, lovely scene is how things should be and that you should feel that way. We went several summers um, right after school got out when my stepson was younger uh, to Big Sur with another family and the mom loved it there and she loved camping there and towards the end of the stay it would be, oh, if only I could keep this (laughs) feeling, which to me there was an implication behind it that that's how I should feel, or that's how things should be. And um, to me, it's a real red flag when I catch myself thinking should or if only. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. One more here for Anna. Um, 
Um, I also had problems with uh, my mind destroying every image that I was trying to focus on. And finally, I found solution in changing uh, the scale and also changing the time scale. So all this upheaval in destruction, um, if I was just trying to look at it from the point of view of its basic elements, that whatever was happening, that uh, the essence was still there, it's the same chemical elements, and if you start going even wider, like whatever fusion reactions inside <laughs> of the sun, changing elements, and still something basic, it's still there, it's not going anywhere. And when you look at it from point of view, very large time scale, then it's just small fluctuations, pretty much. But the essence is still there, very balanced and not really disturbed. Mm -hmm. So that was the way to get around all these mm -hmm. troublesome things. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, so some people uh, can use images, visualizations, analogies like this uh, in a way that's helpful. Some people don't have access to it. Their mind doesn't work that way very well. Some people um, uh, certainly can cling to it. And some people use these kinds of images, visualization as crutches, and it doesn't really help them see clearly what's really going on. So there has to be some wisdom to know when it's useful and when it's not. Sometimes using uh, these kinds of analogies or images are helpful because, because they don't work. They show something about how our mind works. And uh, there might be something to learn about how our mind works that gets highlighted from, you know, how the particular image and analogy doesn't work. And it might be interesting for all of you, you know, if, 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 if one of the images worked, or, you know, why would that work for you? Some of you said because of associated with something in childhood. But, you know, if some of them didn't work, why that? What, what are your associations with that? What, what is it that keeps you from making it work? Or if none of them work, then what's going on behind you that your mind goes so quickly, for example, in looking at all the disasters? You know, does that say something about how your mind tends to work and operate that's interesting to take into account? Um, so the idea, I think one of the ideas is that uh, the quality of equanimity is certainly not something we should get attached to, but it's one of the qualities that supports non-attachment. And in fact, you know, to be equanimous is that state of not being, not attaching, not reacting, not pushing, not being for, but it, it can hold things openly, spaciously, relaxedly. And in that open space, relaxed space, hopefully a wisdom can operate. We can see more clearly what needs to be done in different situations. So um, that's the kind of introduction to our day. Uh, it's probably a good time to take a break. And um, it's 10.30, so let's start again in here at, um, in 15 minutes, maybe, so at... Uh